morning to each of you. I've been thinking a little bit about something that John does when he begins his messages. He greets you in the Master's name. And I was thinking about that this morning in relation to our Sunday school lesson. We have a sin problem as human beings. And we look at Jesus as our Savior. But more than a Savior, He is also Lord. As we come to Him as Savior, we also come to Him as Lord, as Master of our lives. So, when we do that, we come into a kingdom. We come into a place with Him. And we've been studying through the book of 1 Peter and there's things on our mind this morning. Things like viruses. And where is our security? And that's one of the things that we talked about in the early part of First Peter. Been working my way through that. Maybe I already mentioned that. And uh, we're looking at chapter 4. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 4 this morning. But I wanted to, to start out with that thought of security because I want to come back to it later in the message. Where do we find our security? And we talked about the Christian as ambassador and then beginning at the, about the end of chapter 3, we started making comparison between the Christian and the soldier. And I'd like to do just a real quick review of that. Peter began by addressing how the soldier's mind should be prepared, or the Christian's mind should be prepared as a soldier for the kingdom of God. And he started out in chapter 3, verses 20 to 22, talking about that we have chosen the victorious side. And then he moved into chapter 4, and he talks about how that we should be prepared, we should understand that suffering will be a part of our experience as a soldier of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 2 and 7, he talks about that our passions need to be controlled so that we can fulfill God's will. And in, verses, in verse 3, he talks about that our life as a soldier will be distinctly different from our life before. We had a life before that was different from what it is now. And in verse 4, that we'll encounter misunderstanding from the world and its system as a result of that. And then in verse 5, that all men will give account for how they have lived. And in verse 7, that that time of account is not far away. And one of the things that I've been impressed with as I've gone through this, and I've talked a little bit about his, his transition, Peter's transition points. He makes a transition point in verse 7. And he goes from the thinking or the, the mind of the Christian, preparing the mind of the Christian to the, to the being and the doing of the Christian.
And he starts to talk about the practical part of the soldier's responsibility to fulfill God's will in his life. And I want to point out here that I want to think just a little bit about how important it is that our minds be prepared for action. That's extremely important. Why does a, why does a business have training meetings for its employees? It's not to get work done in the business at that meeting. They don't work on that. They prepare their people to work. They prepare their minds. Why do we send our children to school? Is the goal that they'll have good grades on that report card, is that the goal of school? We want them to have good grades, but that's not really the goal. It's not so that they get right answers, it's so they learn how to get right answers. So that when they face real world situations, then they know what to do. So you see, unless you have... So, so the end result of the training is the doing. That's why you train. That's why you need to be prepared. And our minds need to be prepared as Christians. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is that there will be a result. That in the real world, we'll make application to what we know and we will do. And that's what Peter's entering into here. I'd like to read beginning at verse 7 and read through verse 19. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch into prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think not strange concerning the fire trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. So in the message two weeks ago, I went over verses 7 and 8 at the end of the message. But I wanted to go back to those two verses and to point out a few things. 
from them. The one is that in verse 7 it talks about being sober and to watch. And, and those two words are referring to being controlled in body and spirit. So you see, that's a, that's a doing as well as a, as a thinking aspect. We need to be controlled. People who are controlled. And then in verse 8 it says, have fervent charity among yourselves. And I'd like to had a discussion this week with an unbeliever about the definition of love. And we didn't really get much into the definition of love. Uh, it would have been interesting too because I was thinking about this passage and the definition of love. And 1 Corinthians 13 and its definition of love. I'd like to read you verses 4-7 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. And I'd like to think about it from the perspective of suffering. Because that's one of the things that Peter is talking about in this mindset of preparation as a soldier. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Now there's a lot more in chapter 7 than that, but that's kind of the general description of what love is. And the things that really jumped out to me in that passage were the, the very first phrase in verse 4, charity suffereth long. You see, we're talking about suffering. Love suffereth long. And then in verse 7 it says, it beareth all things. And at the end of the verse it says, it endureth all things. And you see, much of the world's definition of love is different from that. This is a sacrificial kind of love. And Peter's saying that we need to have a sacrificial, suffering kind of love for each other. Love motivates us to suffer, to bear, and to endure voluntarily for the object of our love. Love for God and love for our brother. A willingness to suffer as a soldier of Jesus Christ. But not just a, a, not just a knowledge that we should do that, but an actual application of that. A doing of it. And then he goes into verse 9 and he says that we're to use hospitality without grudging. And you see, hospitality is a, is a giving of what I have for the use of someone else. I'm putting it at their disposal. So that's love, right? Well, that's the action. But what's behind the action? And he's saying that we're to do it without grudging. So there's to be a motivation that comes along with it. If I'm only doing this because I have to, is that really love? And I do believe that action is the way that we perceive and express love. 
But I don't believe that action without the actual love will really capture the heart. And that's why God's expression of love in the cross captured our heart. Because it was not because He needed it. Because His desire for us to be able to come into His family. And that captures our hearts. That expression of love captures our hearts. And as we, from the motivation of love, perform the actions of love, the sacrifices of love, that captures the heart and it draws people together. I'd like to keep that kind of in in the context or that context for the next couple verses, especially the next verse. Verse 10, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So the first thing I'd like to think a little bit about is the word gift. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7 it says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? That makes me think about the men's Sunday school class this morning. Uh, Somebody referred to, Brother Joe referred to D.O. Moody's comment about, except for the grace of God, so go I. And when you stop and think about the good things, many good things that you had in your life, where did they come from? Where did the good things come from in your life? Were you able to choose? There were so many things in your life that you were not able to choose. And they have impacted you for good. And Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 4, he's saying that the only thing that makes you to differ from another is what you've received. And if everything that's good comes from God, and it is, then the good things that we've experienced in our lives are a result of His gift to us. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is and what He's done for us. So why do we glory, Paul says, or why do we lift ourselves up as if it was because of who we are? We shouldn't do that. That should humble us. The good things that we have received should humble us before God. And make us more ready to sacrifice ourselves to Him. And the gift of salvation to the believer brings your unique experience that God has given you into the body of Christ for the blessing of the body. And that's what it's talking about here. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. But with that gift comes responsibility. So those good things that you have have blessed your life, but with them comes a responsibility to respond to that gift. Because we've all received gifts, but our choice is what we do with those gifts that we've received. What are we doing with the gifts that God has given us? And Paul's saying in this verse, in verse 10, he's saying, minister the same one to another. 
They're forgiving to others. That's our responsibility. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. talks here about, in verse 11, it talks about different gifts that God gave to the church. In verse 12, it says what the purpose of those gifts were. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so the gifts that you have received as an individual and as a believer is a gift by which the body can be edified. And you have a responsibility in relation to the gift that you have received from God. I'd like to think too a little bit as we're thinking about this, I'd like to think about value. And, and value is established by investment. And Paul is calling us in this verse to invest ourselves as good stewards. You see, a steward takes what someone else's and invests it for a return for that person. And so he's, he's telling us to invest what we've been given. And we're to invest this into what? And what is the church? Would be the next question. Well, the church is the relationships or the, the people the souls that make up the body. And so we're to invest these gifts into the body, into those relationships. So I want you to think about yourself personally for a minute. Each one of you brings something valuable into this group. Of people. You bring something that no one else can bring because God has given you something that He has not given to anyone else. And the second thing is then, you are responsible to voluntarily engage that in edifying the church, engage that gift. There's two things, out of those two things, I'd like to point out something. One, one, one thing is that Satan would like to tear the church down. And that's one of the places that he works on us as individuals. He wants us to think that what we bring is of no value to the church. That's one thing he'll do. He'll try to make us think that we do not have something valuable. And it burdens me when I hear people say, somebody else can do that better than me. Because someone may be able to speak better than me, but that doesn't take away my need 
to give what God has given to me into the body and to administer it into the body. The other thing that Satan wants us to do is to not invest. To think that the church is about what, how I can be blessed, not how I can bless. But brothers and sisters, I don't believe we will ever truly love the church at the depth with that mentality that we will if we understand that it's through my investment of myself that love is built. Because the church, love for the church isn't based on the church's investment in me. It's based on my investment in the church. And if I withhold myself from the body, then I'll never, and, and not engage, then I'll never experience the depth of love that I could if I opened myself up and invest in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So I talked to you about value, that you have value in the kingdom. Now, verse 11 takes away the self-exaltation of that value. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As the ability which God giveth. The gift comes from God. That takes us out of the way. This is something that's coming from God. It has come from God to me. So I'm not the producer of this, but rather the transmitter of it. And I tried to think about how I could illustrate that. And I had a CD sitting on my desk. The value of that CD is not in the CD. The value is in the production that's on that CD. The CD is simply the transmitter of the value. So I might pay $10 for a CD, or I might pay five cents for a CD, One's blank, and its only value to me is the ability to write something on it, and then it might be more valuable as a result of something being written on it. The other one I pay $10 for because there's value that comes to me as a result of what's on there. God is the source. We receive a gift from Him. And that gift is to be transmitted. The value of the message this morning is not in me. It's in what God can transmit to you. It's in your connection with God. That's where the value is. Now there's value in me bringing a message this morning. But that's not where the value is contained. The value is contained in God. And the glory goes to Him. 
that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there's no room for self-exaltation. It's only room for the exaltation of God who has given us unspeakable gifts in Jesus Christ. And He deserves the praise and glory for that. Verses 12 through 16 then are a summary of the sufferings of the suf- of suffering as a Christian. And Peter throughout this book has talked about the sufferings of Christ and compared them to our Christian life and our experience as followers of Him. And he kind of summarizes that here. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fire trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part He is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. In other words, he's saying, don't be surprised that you're going to encounter suffering. It's going to be part of your experience. It's a reality of entering into Christ's suffering. And it has a reward. And God is glorified. And don't bring that suffering on yourself by sinning. But do not be ashamed to suffer for the name of Jesus. I was thinking about this thing of suffering. And, well, maybe I ought to go on down and read verses 17 and 18 as well. Because they point ahead to giving account to God. And, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about suffering because the last verse refers to suffering as well. Uh, verse 17, for, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel? What shall, be the, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? And as I've gone through this book I've, of First Peter, I've kind of wrestled with the, the connection between death and suffering and salvation. Because Peter kind of ties those things together. And it's, it's been kind of like when... I know somebody's name, but I can't come up with it. It's like there's something there that I need to get a hold of, and I want to get a hold of, and I just can't quite get a hold of it. I want to know more about it. I want to understand it better. But there's there's something about suffering in this world that is linked with our salvation. And it's also linked with preparing to meet judgment. And God created the world. In the beginning, God created the world. He created everything to be good. And there was absolutely no suffering. 
But because sin entered the world, then suffering entered the world. Decay entered the world. Death entered the world. And everything that was created had to die as a result of that sin. But God had a redemption plan. He brought about a redemption plan by His grace, by His goodness. And when we die to this life, we gain immortality. And I don't feel like I have quite all that put together, but thinking about this thing of the coronavirus and the fear um, that people have of it made me think about something that I heard some time ago just when the outbreak first happened in China. And, and I don't have a lot of these events down real, real close, but here's one historian's take of it. Because the third century was a crucial time of growth and definition for the early Christian church, the plague of Cyprian came to, ta- came to take a deep spiritual meaning for pagan and Christian alike. So I'm not sure exactly what time frame this was, but there were at least two plagues that went through uh, the city of Rome. And one of them was called the Austin or plague or something like that. And it was brought back by um, soldiers who went to the east and they brought this plague back to, to Rome. And they think it was smallpox, but they're not positive about that. But that's kind of the general, the general stuff that I read about it. But it wiped out a lot of people. It was a tremendous amount of death as a result of that. Then a couple years later, there was another there was another plague that went through, and uh, then mid Dark Ages, I think there was another plague that that went through as well. But this one was called the Plague of of Cyprian. It was named after this bishop, uh, and and here's what this historian went on to say about this: For Bishop Cyprian. The plague that came to bear his name was hard proof of the superiority of Christianity over traditional Roman religion. Seeing the pestilence as an opportunity to put their most deeply held beliefs into action. So that's talking about what we believe going into the doing. So they had early Christians beautifully set about caring for the sick and giving proper burials to the dead in the face of this epidemic. That was what they set about to do. And my understanding is that a lot of the pagans actually fled the city of Rome during this time to try to escape this plague. But the Christians stayed and ministered to the sick and buried the dead. On the other side of the religious divide, the pagan establishment was overwhelmed with fear. Traditionally, Roman priests interpreted the epidemics as a sign of displeasure from the gods. Evidence in the form of new iconographic... I'm not sure how to say that word. 
on coins and references to extraordinary state organized sacrifices suggested that the plague of Cyprian was no different. And this historian says this, sources agree that the epidemic undermined, while there's a lot of different thought about, about some of those basic things, the epidemic undermined the social fabric of pagan society and the orderly response of the Christian community, especially in the burial of the dead, represented a stark contrast. So it's saying that the, the, the living out of the Christians during this time period, it's agreed by historians that they live out their faith during this time of plague. And that, was, that ran through my mind as I heard about this virus. It went through my mind, am I willing to care for people who are sick? If everybody else flees, am I willing to stay and risk my life, be willing to get this disease and suffer for others? And I believe that if we really believe that our security is in Jesus Christ and in our place with Him, that we will be willing to do that. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. So we suffer in this life as a result of the sin that has come into the world. But by doing good, not just knowing good, but by doing good, we entrust ourselves into the hands of the One who created all things good from the beginning. So by suffering willingly in obedience to Christ, we are committing ourselves into the hands of the One who creates good and has promised to restore goodness for eternity. That's where we're placing our hands when we suffer for Christ. So may we seek to find our security in Christ and to face the things that many people fear with the courage that our lives are in the hands of a Creator God who's creating all things good and is faithful. May the Lord bless you. Shall I have a song?